Well, if uh, you do have uh, that passage open, uh, keep it open uh, with us uh, as we go through. Uh, I started this evening, uh, I started this morning rather, it seems a long while ago, I started this morning talking uh, about the greatest sport in the world, cricket. Uh, well, this evening uh, I want to tell you that I'm not a one-trick pony, I uh, do also follow snooker. Um, you may, you may uh, have been thinking that there is no sport more boring than snooker, and now you may be thinking, oh, he's found one. Uh, but I don't find it boring. Uh, but I sometimes wonder what it would have been like uh, to have watched snooker in the days of black and white TV. There's a, there's a, famous, uh, there's a famous line of commentary uh, from those days in which the commentator really helpfully says, for those of you watching in black and white, the pink is next to the green. Uh, you, can, you can find it on YouTube. Nowadays, we, we can watch in colour and everything is uh, in high definition. It, it's all crystal clear. Uh, and you know what? It's, it's a little bit like that with the Bible. It was all there in the Old Testament. Uh, but for the people of God in those days, it was a, a, a bit like watching in black and white. Uh, but now, in Jesus, we can see everything unveiled in glorious HD. You see, for God's people in, in the Old Testament era, the, the, the Day of Atonement that we read about in, in this uh, passage, uh, the Day of Atonement was, was a great day. It, it was more important uh, than any other day in the Jewish calendar. But it was just a pointer, a pointer forward to something uh, much, much greater. What they could only see, as it were, in black and white, this side of the cross we can now see in glorious fullness. Uh, it's been said that in this chapter of Leviticus, there is more gospel than anywhere else in the law. Uh, and I think that's absolutely true, as I hope we'll see this evening as we look at this uh, passage, and more importantly, as we look at the reality to which it pointed. Uh, the word atonement, by the way, is from the same word family as, as the term ransom. Uh, atonement means to pay a ransom. Or, or to rescue by means of a substitute. And that is really what is at the heart of the Day of Atonement. And that, of course, is at the heart of what our Lord Jesus came to do. So this most important day in the Jewish calendar, celebrated every year in the tabernacle and, and later on in the temple which replaced it. And yet as we look now, we can see it was a pointer to an even greater and even more glorious day. Because Leviticus 16 points us to the real Day of Atonement. The day when Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That day that ended the need for any further atonement days. Uh, there is so much that we could uh, look at in this chapter. But what I want us to do simply is this. I want us simply to look at two pictures that God paints for us. Uh, in this chapter. Two pictures that show us Jesus. Uh, and my prayer really is that as we do so, we may simply be drawn to gaze in wonder and rejoice together in the atonement he has achieved for us. Uh, because we can read this chapter with eyes that have been opened to the truth in all its glorious fullness. Uh, and so for us, these two pictures that God paints for us in this chapter become brighter and clearer and more glorious. 
So what are these two pictures? Well, picture number one is the high priest. The high priest, he's the central character of the Day of Atonement. He's the one who conducts all these rituals and sacrifices. He's the one who is permitted to come into the most holy place on this one day each year. He is the one, the only one, from among all of the Israelites who is allowed to come into the very presence of God. Now, the tabernacle, uh, like the temple after it, was set up essentially as a series of of kind of courtyards uh, surrounding the most holy place uh, in the centre. The most holy place, that was where the the Ark of the Covenant rested, the Ark that contained the the tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. And on top of the Ark uh, were two uh, cherubim whose wings touched in the middle, and between them a slab of gold, the mercy seat or the atonement cover that we read about in our chapter. Uh, And that was the place where the presence of Almighty God symbolically dwelt among his people. This was, if you like, the throne of God on earth. And for 365 days of the year, it was out of bounds. Did I say 365? I meant 364. 364 days of the year. It was out of bounds, never seen by human eyes. Day after day, the people came to the tabernacle to worship. Day after day, the the priests offer sacrifices in the outer courts. But on this one day each year, this one day, the high priest and him alone is allowed to come into the most holy place to approach God himself. I don't know if any of you have uh, ever been to the Keswick Convention. We've been for a number of years. Uh, But to the side of the platform in in the main tent is a large black curtain uh, reaching from the ground right up to the top of the tent. Uh, Behind it is where the musicians and the speakers prepare for the the service. And like many people, I had often sat there in amongst uh, sort of 3,000 people wondering what on earth it was like behind there. It was out of bounds to mere mortals. But then, then I was invited to join the pastoral team and I could go behind the curtain. To be honest, it wasn't very special at all, really. I I, I got to meet the main speaker and get a lukewarm cup of coffee, but that was about it. It wasn't all that spectacular. Uh, And I joked with somebody then, was this what it felt like for the high priest on the Day of Atonement? Well, no, it wasn't, because that was a spectacular privilege. To go into the most holy place, to enter the presence of God himself. Notice how the chapter begins. It starts in the context of Aaron's two sons. Aaron, brother of Moses, he's the first high priest. His sons were also priests. But they had taken it upon themselves to go in and approach God on their own terms. You can read about that in chapter 10. The net result was they died because of it. They remind us that approaching God is not a natural right for sinful human beings. Aaron needed to realize that he had this immense privilege, but he could not go before God as he pleased. He could not go any time he wanted. He could go once a year. And so Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, cited in this context, how can a sinful human being approach a holy God? And that is the significance of the high priest on this one day each year. He is able to come. 
and he represents all of the people before God. And so in this first vivid picture that God paints for us, we have painted before our eyes an image of how a person can come into the presence of God. That is what the high priest does. You know, it's, it's easy to read this passage and gloss over two really important things that we really ought to notice. You know what it's like if you go and visit an art gallery uh, or something like that, um, if you're cultured enough to do that. Uh, but if you go and visit an art gallery and you, uh, you, you look at a wonderful painting by a famous artist, and you look at it for a few minutes and then you think, oh, I'll go and see something else now, thank you very much. It's very easy to do that with the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But if we do it, we miss two very important things, two really crucial features of this picture that God wants us to see. And first of all, we need to take careful notice of what the high priest wears. You might be thinking what the high priest wore on the Day of Atonement a few thousand years ago is of little interest to us as New Testament Christians. If you're thinking that, I'd very politely like to tell you you're wrong. Because the normal high priestly robes that he wore, every other day of the year, they were ornate, rich, glorious. They pointed to the importance and the dignity of the role. But now on the Day of Atonement, what is he to do? Verse 4, how is he to come before God on this great day? Well, he's to take off the glorious robes of his high office and instead put on a linen tunic with linen undergarments and a linen sash and a linen turban. Linen. Simple. Humble. On this day, the most important day of the year, when he's about to enter the most holy place, Aaron is to take off and put to one side all of his symbols of honour and dignity and instead clothe himself like a servant. Remind us of someone? God is painting a picture of how a sinful human being can approach God. And as he does so, he points us, he shows us one who was to come. One who was more spectacular, one who was far more glorious than the high priest ever was. One who has dwelt in majesty from eternity, yet one who took off all of his glory and instead dressed himself like one of us in our humanity. One who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Aaron points us to him, to the one who in every single aspect of his life looked inglorious, a servant king who came not to be served but to serve, Jesus, the one who knelt in humility and washed his disciples' feet. The high priest pictures for us the, the coming saviour who would be characterised by humility and selflessness, who was willing to become nothing for us, and eventually looked just about as inglorious as you could possibly imagine as he was hung on a cross. He willingly laid aside his majesty for us. The high priest paints this picture for us, not just, uh, or even simply in what he wears, but not just that, he also helps us understand something by what he does. The high priest begins this solemn day, not by charging straight into the Holy of Holies, but first by making himself fit to enter. He not only has to put aside all his finery, but he has to offer a sacrifice for himself and his household, verse 6. 
So do you see what God is, is showing us in this picture? He's, he's showing us that the high priest, despite holding this important role, is still in and of himself unworthy to stand before God. He needs to make atonement for his own sin. God is painting a picture. He's reminding us of the truth that we thought about this morning. There is no one righteous, not even the high priest. God is clear, isn't he? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even Aaron, even his greatest servants, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Each of us is too marred by sin to stand before him. So what is this picture all showing God's people? What does it show us? It's showing us our need for a greater high priest than one who is merely human. We need one who can stand before God on his own merit. We need one who can stand before God without first needing to make a sacrifice for his own sin. And that person we know is Jesus. The righteous of the Hebrews helps us to understand. Hebrews 7, verse 27, unlike the other high priests, he, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. You see, unlike Aaron, Jesus did not need to offer a sacrifice for his own sin because he had none. And that is precisely what qualifies him to be not just a high priest, but our great high priest. And through him, because of his perfect righteousness, we can come into the presence of God. The people of Israel, remember, they could not come. They could not come with the high priest into the most holy place. They had to be represented by him. He could not take them with them. And so as we look at the high priest on this day of atonement, we realize our need of someone greater. Someone greater who can take us into the very presence of God. I had a college friend who came from a very wealthy family. She lived in a, a, a huge house and the, the grounds were surrounded by a wall. Uh, the main gate looked pretty imposing. Her, her parents, I think, quite liked the privacy. You couldn't just waltz up to the front door. You had to go through the main gates even to get to the front door. Uh, and yet when my friend invited a group of us round, we walked up to that main gate with complete confidence and rang the bell. And she came out and opened the door and welcomed us in. Come, come meet the family. You see, this side of Calvary, we can come with confidence into the presence of God because we are represented by a great high priest, his own son. Jesus himself, he, he, he doesn't represent us as we stand outside. He beckons us, come on in. Jesus, our great high priest, who in his perfection stands in heaven and bids us come with him into the presence of our heavenly father. Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. The book of Hebrews is essentially a sermon on the book of Leviticus, a better sermon than I could ever preach. But Jesus is our great high priest. That's the point of, of the early chapters of Hebrews. Jesus, our great high priest, and he welcomes us to come before the throne of God above. So in the high priest, God is painting a picture. He's showing us Jesus. 
He's showing us the one who willingly took off all of his glory to become our saviour. He's showing us the one who has become our great high priest who welcomes us into the presence of his father, our father. But there is a second picture here too, and it's a picture of uh, two goats. As the first picture shows us a need for a greater high priest, well, this second picture shows us our need for a greater sacrifice. A sacrifice that would fully and finally fulfill what these two goats point us to. So you see the high priest, well, he's to take two goats from the Israelite community. Uh, And once he's made atonement for his own sin, verse 7, he's to present these two goats before the Lord. And then he's to cast lots for them. One goat will be for the Lord, the other will be for the scapegoat. What on earth is going on here? Well, it's a highly symbolic act. You see, the high priest has made a sacrifice for his own sin. And now he gets to work on behalf of uh, the people. And, and these two goats together make up the sin offering on behalf of the, the community of, of God's people. Each goat has its own symbolic meaning, but you have to take them together to get the full picture. It's one act of making atonement for all the sins of the people. To bridge that gap between God and sinful humans. And together the, these two goats again picture what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Because, you see, not only is Jesus our our great high priest, he's also our great sacrifice. You see, the first goat represents for us the payment for our sin. God is a holy God, perfect and righteous. He's dazzlingly holy. Nobody could ever look at him, let alone stand before him. And because he's a holy God, he's rightfully angry with sin. We know that's not a very popular message today, but it's the Bible's message. The idea of God being the judge of of all is repulsive to many people, but it's what the Bible teaches. God is holy and he's therefore angry with sin. He's a God of perfect justice. And yet on the Day of Atonement, we have a wonderful picture of how God's justice is satisfied. His anger is turned away because of a sacrifice that he's made, a blood sacrifice that was necessary to, to turn away God's wrath. Just look at what happens. The high priest takes one of these goats and he sacrifices it for the sins of the people. And and then verse 15, what does he do? Well, he takes some of the blood from this slaughtered goat and and he takes it with him behind the curtain. He takes the blood of this sacrifice into the presence of God and he gives it to God. And he sprinkles it on the atonement cover, the the throne of God on earth, the the place where God dwells, and it is splattered with sacrificial blood. Is there anything more wonderful than that? The meeting point between a holy God and his sinful people, and it's splattered with blood. Blood that satisfies God's justice and bridges the gap. And yet... If you read on the rest of uh, chapter 16, you are reminded that this had to take place year after year. Because it was just a sign. The sacrificed goat and its blood splattered on the mercy seat, it's a picture. It's a picture of what eventually would take place at the cross. Because we needed one who would make that ultimate sacrifice to end the need for these other sacrifices. Because as wonderful as this day of atonement was, Again, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so on the Day of Atonement, each year, God is signalling that he is willing 
not to punish his people for their sin. And he gives them a picture that showed them that a blood sacrifice was necessary to satisfy his justice. But it was only at the cross of Jesus that it finally took place. I wonder whether you've ever received a parking fine. Probably far too good to have done so, or too good to admit it. But I have. Um, a couple of years ago, my GP sent me straight up to the hospital... Uh, when I got there, I realised I had no change. So I put a polite notice in the windscreen. I'll, I promised to go and get some change. I didn't realise that what was actually going to happen, I was going to be rushed into A&E, uh, put in a hospital bed, admitted and prepared for emergency surgery. I didn't realise that. And so when Beth then came up to the hospital that evening with a bag of clothes, she went back to the car and found the parking ticket. But I read it. Um, I looked at the appeals procedure. Uh, and I, um, so I wrote to them explaining the situation. I wasn't very hopeful, uh, but to my surprise, a week later, I got an email to say the penalty had been cancelled. I didn't have to pay up. The penalty had just been done away with, forgotten. But that does not happen, cannot happen, with God's justice. He cannot just turn a blind eye and cancel the penalty because we've got a good excuse. The penalty for sin still had to be paid. And Jesus paid it all. It's not that the penalty was cancelled, it's that it was paid in full. God's wrath had to be satisfied and it was as Jesus bore our sin on the cross that it happened. Because all of God's righteous anger against our sin was heaped upon Jesus and like this first goat on the day of atonement he died in our place and his blood as it were was splattered all over the throne of God and God's justice was satisfied we know he was the only person who ever lived for whom a sacrifice wasn't necessary he's the only one for whom blood didn't need to be shed and yet he, the sinless one, became sin for us. He himself became the sacrifice in order to satisfy God's wrath, God's justice. He gave himself willingly for us that on the basis of his shed blood, we might approach the mercy seat, the very throne of God in heaven. As we sung earlier, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This first goat sacrificed for the sins of its people, its blood sprinkled before God, it, it pictures for us the one who was to come, whose perfect blood would satisfy God's justice and pay for our sin in full. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. But there's a second goat. The first goat represents the payment for sin. The second goat, well, it pictures the removal of sin. What does the high priest do next? Well, after he sprinkled the blood of this first goat, he goes and takes the other one. Verse 20, he goes and he takes the live goat. And he lays his hands on it and he confesses over it all the wickedness, all the rebellion, all the sin of the Israelites. Every single sin he he, he symbolically transfers those sins onto this live goat. And just as the first goat had become a substitute in its death, this goat becomes a substitute in its life. The first goat pictures the payment for sin. This is the removal of sin. You see, this goat bears the sin of the people and it's taken outside of the camp and it's released in order that it might go far away. It's, it's called the scapegoat. 
Beth will often tell us stories, she'll take great joy in telling stories of growing up with an older brother and a younger sister. Uh, she'll tell of some of the things they used to get up to, normally started by her older brother. Uh, in childhood, he seemed to have been a bit of a mischief. Uh, he's now a very respectable barrister. Um, but when things got too far, uh, or mum and dad were going to find out what they'd done, they'd come clean, or at least they would confess what they'd done, and they'd pin all the blame on their little sister, uh, who was too helpless to argue back. She was the scapegoat. Took the blame, even though she wasn't guilty. You see, that's what a scapegoat is. One who is not guilty, but who takes the blame in order that the real culprits might go free. And that's what happens with this, this second goat. All of the people's sin is placed upon it, and he takes it away. Highly symbolic, isn't it? The, the people are not punished for their sin because it's already been paid for by the first goat. And now the people are not burdened by their sin because it's taken away. You see what God is picturing? We can, we can see so much more clearly, can't we? God is not just willing to foot the bill for our sin. He's willing to remove the burden of our sin as well. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it's like when we confess our sin and yet we still sometimes feel the overwhelming burden of it? The guilt and the shame. Well, he's willing to take that guilt and shame and carry it far away. Just as the scapegoat was taken into the wilderness outside of camp, Jesus was taken outside of a city and left on his own to die, bearing the weight of our sin, that the burden of that sin might be carried away. As far as the east is from the west, says the psalmist, so far has our transgression been removed from us. Some of the most wonderful words ever written by a hymn writer, I think, are these. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. You see, just as the sin of the Israelites was put on the scapegoat and thrown out of camp, our sin is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Do do we believe that this evening? It's so easy to keep carrying the burden of past sin. To carry the shame and the guilt, to keep maybe telling ourselves that maybe our sin keeps us from knowing God fully or serving him effectively. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. And that means we no longer carry the burden. We no longer bear the shame. The gospel calls us to live in the glorious freedom of knowing our sin has been paid for and carried away. And that means we can live in the absolute triumph of the cross because Christ became sin for us. We can live in a joy and a freedom and a triumph that the the people of Israel in, in the days of Leviticus, they simply could not dream of. We can live in that joy and freedom. That freedom of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These two pictures on the Day of Atonement, they showed the Israelites their need. And they pointed them forward to a day when God would send the reality. They needed a greater high priest. They needed a greater sacrifice. And in Jesus, he's given us both. A great high priest who welcomes us, saying, come into the very presence of God. And a great sacrifice, one whose blood was shed to pay the price for our sin 
carried our sin away. And as Leviticus 16 pointed people forward, we now look back. And as we do so, we gaze in wonder as we see the full reality of what Jesus was doing for us. So we bow before him in worship and adoration. Shall we pray? And then we will sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to come and die for us. We thank you that you not only bore our sin, you you not only faced the penalty, not only paid the price, but you carried our sin away. Help us, we pray, to live in the glorious freedom of sins forgiven, sin fully and finally dealt with in every way. Help us to live in that freedom, that joy of no condemnation. We thank you for what you've done for us. And as we now come around your table, as we eat bread and drink wine together in remembrance, we pray that you would meet with us and bring that joy to our hearts. Amen. Amen. And we sing the song, O to see the dawn. <laughs>